Please turn with me in your Bibles to a new book, the book of Jonah, new book for our study, that is. We've been studying the minor prophets. We've studied Obadiah and Joel, and now you can turn to page 772. I think that's the right page, 774, the book of Jonah. And because we are limited with time, because we want to save ample time for preparation for the Lord's Supper, I won't give a a detailed introduction to the book. We'll take that up later, but just know for now is written about the same time as uh, Obadiah and Joel and uh, was written to the northern tribes of Israel and to a very comfortable congregation as we've talked about with our study of Joel. People who are very secure in their position, very Uh, comfortable in their material condition and people who are rather smug about God's favor for them. Of course they think, of course God would like us very much. We are on the right side of things. Jonah has a lot of surprises. I'm eager to preach through Jonah because it was this book in college that convinced me that God is a God of grace. You know, the Bible is uh, about the good news of Christ, the gospel from one end to the other, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Christ and it's all about the revelation of God's grace. And as one uh, theologian says, an expert on biblical language says, you, the, way you have to, the way you understand the loving kindness of God, another word for grace, is that it is something that always surprises It's never predictable. That is, it's not predictable according to the way we would judge things. God's grace surprises. There are lots of surprises waiting for us in this book. So I want to study it and uh, want you to love it as much as I do. We begin reading in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord." But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Rise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea, and he made the dry land. 
The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them that. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us unto, uh, lay not unto us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased to you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would be freshly surprised by the greatness of your grace, freshly surprised unto encouragement, unto obedience, perhaps unto conversion, but surprise us with the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ anticipated by this old book, Jonah. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said together, amen. It was June. 1972, Vietnam War was raging still. Nick Ut from Ut from the Associate, Associated Press was there taking pictures. He was in Trong Bang at the time. He was taking pictures of of uh, the war's impact on the population and. Then, to everyone's surprise and terror, at least on the ground, there was the sound of helicopters, and the children who were playing in the streets ran for the temple to take shelter. The helicopters dropped a bomb, a napalm bomb, which found the children in the temple. That chemical attached to the clothing of the children and they began to run in terror. Nick Oot captured a picture that has become iconic now. It appeared on the page, the front page of 20 plus newspapers. That little girl that he took a picture of, that little girl on whose clothing napalm had attached, she ripped off her clothing and she was running down Route 1, the main road, and flapping her arms, crying out, too hot, too hot, too hot. She's become known, became known as the napalm girl. Real name was Kim Fook. And Nick Oot taking pictures, recording all of this, uh, was overwhelmed with the pain that was being created for the children. He couldn't take it anymore. He put down his camera and he opened the, the, the door to his van and gathered up the children, rushed them to the hospital. He got Kim Fook there just in time, just before she died. They didn't really expect her to survive. 
But 14 months, 14 uh, treatments later, surgeries, she lived. She went home to be with her family, but she said, even though the doctors helped heal my wounds on the outside, they could not heal my emotional wounds on the inside. He said, my, my heart was as dark with bitterness, as black as old coffee. I hated those who were normal because I was not and never would be. She was consumed by that bitterness and didn't want to be. So she started looking for answers, ultimate answers. Even at nine years old, Kim Fuchs started reading in the local library everything she could to find answers to the big questions that what could produce this kind of suffering. She came across a Bible in her little village he read the Bible and made, he made her ask even more questions, but she was desperate to know the answers to them. She called her brother-in-law, called on her brother-in-law, who she knew to be a Christian. He invited her to church on Christmas, and there hearing the gospel preached, she gave her life to Christ. She said, I was eager to trust in the Lord. I couldn't wait. Jesus helped me learn to forgive my enemies. I finally had some place, some peace in my heart. Now when I look at the scars or suffer pain, I'm thankful the Lord put his mark on my body to remind me that he is with me at all times. It's just the way God surprises with his grace. That's a God-sized grace story. That's a grace-sized God story. Because the Bible describes God's grace as something that is higher than the heavens, as something that outstrips our imaginations. It says that when, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Grace is impossible to calculate. You never can predict it. And it's never what you would conjure up in yourself, the grace of God's love that Lucy was talking about manifested most perfectly in Jesus Christ, who is specifically anticipated in this book with the prophecy of Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. We'll talk about that later. Do you believe in a grace-sized God? Do you believe in God-sized grace? Do you believe it enough to participate in the surprising work of God's grace. I want you to look at the three surprises that come in this chapter alone, just in chapter one. Jonah's a very skillful author. He writes this whole book with a poetic structure. The exact center of the book of Jonah is chapter two, verse nine, which I'll get to in a minute. And so Jonah uses words very skillfully and artfully to convey his message, and he uses, he uses prepositions very carefully. Up and down are his favorite. And here in the first two verses, we see that uh, here is this first irony, this first surprise of grace, that even while Jonah is fleeing, he is found by God, who in the course 
of pursuing Jonah also finds and saves other sinners. Look at the first two verses. The word of the Lord came down to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, great because of its sin, and call out against it, for their evil has come up to me. Their evil or their wickedness has come up to me, therefore I want the word to go down to it. Now, what was the wickedness or the evil of of Nineveh. Nineveh was a, not the capital city at the time, but a prominent city uh, at the time, perhaps as many as 600,000 people living there. And then, and Jonah uh, is, Nineveh is a key city in Assyria, Assyria, the persistent enemy of, of Israel, God's people. And that city was known, Assyrians were known for their peculiar cruelty, their viciousness in warfare plowing their, their opponents under the ground, flaying, uh, flaying them alive, burning them, impaling them on, on uh, spear shafts and so forth. They were particularly cruel and inhumane. Their wickedness has come up against me. And you can hear Jonah saying, it's about time. It's about time their wickedness has come up against you, against, uh, uh, to your notice but then God surprises Jonah and says, so I want you to take the word to them. Now, Jonah is a prophet. We, know, we don't know a whole lot about Jonah, but we know that he is a prophet. And whenever a prophet of God heard the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord has come to you. It was like a fireman's bell. The prophet was to rise, just like we have here. You are to, he's to rise, and he is to announce that word. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Joel. This is the only prophet in the Old Testament to whom the word of the Lord comes, and he runs. He rebels. Now, to be fair, he is also the only prophet in the Old Testament, he was called to take the word to a foreign people, to the Gentiles, to another nation, to actually go there and take it to them. But Jonah, when he heard, he heard that the Lord wanted him to take the word, that is the proclamation of ultimate good news. Warning, yes, if you don't accept the good news, there'll be judgment, but take this news, take the word, my word to them. When he hears to whom God wants him to take it, he refuses. And the Bible calls it this prophecy. Jonah himself identifies that rebellion, wickedness. The same word used to describe the Assyrians' inhumane treatment of their victims. It's like it's as if the fireman's bell goes off and he's, he's sliding down the pole and he gets his boots, he's going to put on his protective equipment and then it says, they announce where the fire is and they tell him what part of town it is and the people who are in danger and he, when he hears who they are, he takes his boots off and he goes back to bed. That's what Jonah has done. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to the Assyrians and preach my good news. And he says, I will not. And God calls that wickedness. Because Jonah thought ahead, as we'll learn by the fourth chapter, and he, he thought ahead, God could save these people. And if he saves them, they'll come to the temple. 
If he saves them, they're going to come to my church. If he saves them, they're going to be part of my family. I can't have that. I will not go. I'll go the opposite way. Evil comes up, the word comes down, and Jonah runs away. Jonah's told to go east. Jonah, go toward the Arabian Desert. Spin around it, get around it, get over the Tigris and Euphrates and preach the good news there. Jonah effectively turns right and goes west. His his desire is to go west. He goes down to Joppa and he's going to go to Tarshish. He's going to go to Spain. He's going to go as far west as he possibly can to get away from that call to take the good news to the Assyrians. He can't afford for them to come into the faith. It would disturb his sensibilities, his comfort, what he's familiar with. Plus, they don't deserve it. They're bad people. The captain comes down into the hold of the ship to find Jonah, who is ironically sleeping. Implicitly, he knows that God protects him, and uh, there is that... um, Cognitive dissonance going on in Jonah's head that while rebelling, he knows that God's going to protect him, so he's asleep. And the captain comes down and finds Jonah and demands that Jonah proclaim God's word to him and to his sailors because Jonah was also denying it to them. There they were up on the top of the, uh, the, on the deck of the ship, crawling out to Baal, whom they thought had created heaven and earth and the sea, crying out to Melkart, their, their God, these Phoenician sailors. And Jonah had denied them the good news too. He could have been a very successful prophet. He would have had a 100% conversion rate right there. He did end up having a 100% conversion rate, but he wasn't around to see it. How ironic is God's grace that while Jonah is trying to flee and he's pursuing his wickedness of of denying the good news to his enemies, that God would find him and find these sailors as well. So his solution was, you should kill me. I would rather you kill me. I would rather commit suicide. I would rather die than take the word to those people. God swallows him with a fish. He can't run away from God's grace. You know, we sing uh, William Cooper's famous hymn, God's, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. William Cooper, you've heard me talk about him on occasion, a friend of John Newton's, the author of Amazing Grace. William Cooper suffered from, he was born, he lived in the 1700s, and he suffered from anxiety and depression his whole life, and he just believed that God's grace was too good to be true. It could not possibly save him, though he wrote all of these beautiful hymns that we have including the one about his own depression called Sometimes the Light Surprises. But he wrote this hymn, uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, or Oh for a Closer Walk with God. 
John uh, William Cooper on one occasion thought that it's not just not worth living. God's grace is too good to be true. Life is not worth living. So he went to the bridge in York where the Ooze River runs underneath, and he determined he was going to jump off of the, the bridge and, and kill himself. But there were too many tourists along the bridge. He couldn't find a space to get to the bridge to jump off of it. So he got a carriage ride back home, and he took his knife. He was going to fall on his knife. He fell on the knife. The knife broke. He was going to hang himself, and the rope broke. And John Newton says, don't you see the message? God's grace is greater than your doubt and your fear. You hear it in this line, don't you? In this hymn, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The, 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 the clouds ye so much dread will break with blessings on your, uh, will, uh, will break with blessings on your head. Those, those, those clouds of fear contain God's grace. Even in those clouds of fear, God in His grace is pursuing you. Cooper believed that God's grace was too good to be true. Jonah, on the other hand, believed God's grace too true to be good. He knew that God would save these people. That's what he reveals in chapter 4. The reason I did not go is because I knew as soon as I went there, you would save these people. I know that's what grace is. And I tried desperately to prevent it by killing myself. Jonah calls that wickedness. He was true about himself, but he was also exposing it in the people to whom he was ministering. Another uh, surprise that comes in this text is in verses 7 through 10, that even while he is rebelling, God uses Jonah's actions and his words to evangelize, to bring these sailors to the Lord. Now, Jonah does this by impressing, by using the same word, just as he cleverly uses the word evil in different ways, he uses the word fear in different ways. So, for instance, when they ask him, who are you, Uh, what is your occupation, where are you from, and so forth, he answers all the questions except his occupation. You notice that? I mean, how hard would it have been to explain? Well, I'm a prophet, by the way. That's why I was down sleeping and not telling you anything. But he admits to being a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. He tries to correct their theology. You see, you're crying out to the wrong one. He's, you're calling out to someone who else is creator. My God is the one who created all things, not Baal. And God uses it. When he says, I fear the Lord, he means by that, of course, that he is a follower of the Lord. But his, his fear at the time was that God was after him. So that fear took on the form of, of discipline. Now, these sailors in verses uh, 10 and 11 are also afraid. They became afraid when they heard out that the God, the God of heaven and earth, is the one who was pursuing Jonah in discipline, and that's the reason for the sea. And they, they recognized that he was the one who must be respected. They could be judged by him 
But what was the impact of that testimony of what, of what, uh, what Jonah revealed to them, especially when it was confirmed by the calm sea when he was thrown overboard? It was that they, in verses 14 to 16, they feared the Lord and offered him sacrifices. They became worshipers. Now, how, how do those, those what is the, what's the significance of those different meanings? Well, fear of the Lord, you've heard that in Sunday school, that it's reverence for God. That's somewhat right, but it's more complicated than that. It's more complex than that. Fear of the Lord in Scripture is the way you react when you realize that you're in the presence of God. That's the fear of the Lord. It's the way you react when you realize that you're in the, in the presence of God. Now, what you're doing at the time will determine the way you react when you realize you're in the presence of God. When you're Jonah and you're running away from God and you realize I'm in the presence of God, you're afraid. When you're when you're sailors who don't know, the, never bowed the knee to the God of heaven and earth and you realize you could be judged, you're terrified. But when you realize that you're in the presence of a God of grace who redeems those who humbly turn to Him for salvation, then you worship Him as these sailors did. Jonah tried his best not only to deny the Assyrians the good news, he tried his best to deny these sailors the good news. And maybe he had some satisfaction that when he was cast overboard, at least they didn't get it. But to everyone's surprise, they were saved after he was thrown overboard. Now, some of you say, you know, I'm just not an evangelist. I can't share my faith. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. Well, here's, what you, here's the advantage you have over Jonah. At least you want to. And if God can use someone who doesn't want to, to save those who are His, then how much more can He use you, even with your, your, your lack of skill, so you think? Why does He do that? Why is, how is God able to do that despite us? Look at the very center of the book, as I mentioned, chapter 2, verse 9. The very center, the precise center, in terms of verses, in terms of words, is this at the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And when, when Jewish poets wanted to convey the main thought of, an, of a passage or a book, they put the idea in the center. Here is the center of the book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God saves. God saves. God is going to save. He is going to demonstrate His grace. Whether you're willing or unwilling. God surprises in His grace by finding those who are fleeing, he, by evangelizing those who are, who are rebellious. I told a story in the first service to illustrate this that about Dorothy Day, not Doris Day, the actress, Dorothy Day, the reporter in the 19, early 1900s. In 1917, Dorothy Day was sitting in a, in a bar with uh, the famous the, the nationally famous playwright named Eugene O'Neill. He would go on to win uh, four Pulitzer Prizes and a Nobel Prize. And she was, uh, she was a, a, a famous journalist even at the time. And they were in a bar called Hell Hole. And, uh, and Eugene O'Neill had too much to drink. He started quoting poetry. He remembered a poem that he had learned as a child 
written by Francis Thompson, The Hound of Heaven. And he quoted some of the lines, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I, found him, I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And yet the poem goes on to describe the Holy Spirit as a hound, a bloodhound of heaven going after, following after, following after the one he is pursuing until one day he rises and clasps the hand of Christ. The people who listened to, to Eugene O'Neill quote that poem were amazed by it. They had never heard it before. Dorothy Day couldn't get it out of her head. Eugene O'Neill went on to sober up, and when he did, he went on in his, the rest of his career to write very bitterly about Christianity. He hated God for what he called his inconsistencies, and he hated God for uh, sin and for the concept of judgment. But Dorothy Day, Dorothy Day went on to be married twice, conceived twice, aborted twice, had a child a third time, didn't marry the father. And then in 1927, remembering the hound of heaven pursuing, pursuing, pursuing in His grace, she gave her life to Christ. So impassioned was she for Him that she took a vow of poverty, moved to the inner city of New York and gave her life, the rest of her life, for the poor, for the homeless. We have a Dorothy Day house for the homeless here in Memphis. That is her legacy. She never quit praying for Eugene O'Neill. And in fact, when he was on his deathbed, she sat with him until he died, held his hand and prayed and said for years later, after, she hoped that he had said those words of Francis Thompson at the end of that poem. She hoped he went on to rise and clasp the hand of him who reached out to him. Here's Eugene O'Neill used to evangelize, to bring the gospel to Dorothy Day. This is the God who surprises with his grace. And then the third irony I want you to see that you'll see more clearly in the book as we study it to the end of verses 11 to 17, it is that even while Jonah is trying to deny the gospel of grace, of, of salvation to the Assyrians and the Phoenician sailors, his act of denial actually confirms the reality of it. You see, while the sailors uh, demonstrate, Jonah shows that he doesn't care for the lives or the eternal lives of these he's called to preach to. These sailors, ironically, care for his life, and God saves their lives. And, and by the end of the book, God saves every life mentioned in this book, even the cattle. And the great revelation in chapter 4, verse 2, to spoil the surprise, I suppose, is the greatest surprise, is that when God asks Jonah, why were you so angry, and why would you not go? He says, I knew this. This is what I said back in my own country. You 
are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting concerning disaster. He quotes from the Hebrew catechism of Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the way God revealed himself to Moses. I knew that because in your core, the core of your being, you are merciful, you are full of loving kindness, you are gracious, you are love. Because this is the kind of God you are, I knew when I went to those people, you would save them. I could not allow that to happen. Those people don't deserve it. Those people could not be in my church. Jonah's telling the story on himself because he was saved in the process. It's a message he's preaching to his people. And it's a message that is good news for us. This is the God revealed in Jesus Christ who's calling you to believe in him for the first time or to serve him. And the question is, where are you? Are, are you participating in that surprising grace or are you in the corner like we talked about last week? In the corner, wanting your familiarity, wanting everything to be just the same. You don't want your apple cart to be disturbed, your life to be unsettled. You don't want anything to change what is customary to you and as a result, you'll live a boring life. Because the kingdom of God is moving forward, surprising people with its grace everywhere it goes. Don't you want to be a part of that enterprise? 1996, John Plummer was a minister of the gospel, pastor of Methodist Church in Purcellville, Virginia. 1972, he had been an officer for the American forces in Vietnam, and after two assurances that there were no civilians in Trang Bang, he gave approval to the helicopter crew to drop the napalm bomb, but they were, the intelligence he got was obviously an error. There were lots of civilians. He lived with the horror of that the rest of his life. Though he didn't personally drop the bomb, he had, he had approved it, and the impact was devastating. He had seen the picture of Kim Phuc running through the streets of Trang Bang, and he had lived with that sorrow and that grief and that heaviness that in 1996 he read that Kim Phuc was coming to a city nearby where he was pastoring and he, he got a, 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 a crew, not the particular crew, but another crew of a helicopter group in Vietnam and, and he and they went to listen to Kim Phuc give her story, her testimony. And she said in that testimony, she said, I've always prayed that I could meet the man who gave the order to drop that bomb because I would want to say to him that I've discovered the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and I would want to say to him, I forgive you. He sent a note up to the front that the man she wanted to meet was in the audience and asked if she was willing. She was introduced to him and he fell into her arms. He was weeping. 
She said she saw his grief, she saw his pain, she saw his sorrow. Though he was, he could argue technically he wasn't directly responsible for dropping that bomb. He didn't do it afterwards, but he was sorry for the impact of it. He was sorrowful. God had expanded his heart with grace and love to the point that he could, without condemnation before God, be sorrowful for the pain that that caused. And he expressed it to her. And he kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she kept saying, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. I forgive you. That's a story only God can write. That's a grace-sized story of surprises. And surprises happen like that in people's lives who step into the flow of the Holy Spirit we've been studying in Joel that was poured out on the church in Acts. And who with courage say, use me, even if it makes me uncomfortable like being in the belly of a fish. Use me. Surprise me with grace that I might be a herald of the same. Salvation belongs to the Lord.